the Rural Health Voice, Episode 48, Payment Inequities. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How does the way hospitals get paid reinforce healthcare disparities? Dr. Amol Navathe joined me to discuss the need for payment reform and how the current system enables problems. So welcome, Dr. Navathe. Thank you very much, Beth, for having me. Oh, we appreciate it. Now, you work in medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about what medical, medical ethics is. What is it that you study? Sure. So I, I actually uh, work within a relatively unique department in the landscape of medical ethics and health policy, where we actually are a group of medical ethicists and health policy experts who sit together and think about issues and try to understand what are the ethics of health policy changes, uh, like the like healthcare payment, as we're going to talk about today. And uh, and so my role actually, I'm an economist and I'm a physician. And I collaborate with my ethicist colleagues to understand how our incentive systems are generating results in the healthcare system and how those might have ethical implications. How did you first become interested in medical ethics and the policies that support medical ethics? So dating back several years ago, I was actually working in the private sector and spent a lot of time with uh, device companies and pharmaceutical companies and health insurers. And one thing that became very clear is that our physicians in this country uh, wield a lot of authority and a lot of influence over the type of care that's delivered and the type of health decisions that get made. And I became very interested in physicians as economic agents, uh, physicians as basically arbiters of some of the ethical decisions that we end up having to make in our healthcare system. And based on that, decided I should study it more and pursue it further. And with that, you and a colleague recently had an editorial published about how our healthcare payment system can reinforce health disparities. And before we get into the actual content of the editorial, tell me how someone at a private Ivy League research institution can truly understand health disparities. Sure. So uh, that's a great question. So the first thing is, I think, importantly, a lot of the the lens I take to my work from a research and policy perspective is inspired by my patients. So I am a practicing physician. I actually practice within the Veterans Affairs or the VA system. I would say the vast majority of my patients uh, face some sort of financial challenges or other social challenges uh, that the VA system is actually largely equipped to handle, which is great, but I get a frontline view of what it's like to seek healthcare as somebody who is not an affluent, wealthy, and oftentimes white person in this country. And so that's a big inspiration for me. I think I, I try to view uh, what it's what it's like to actually be a patient and what it's like to be somebody trying to find and navigate our healthcare system through the lens of my patients. And your editorial caught my attention because the Virginia Rural Health Association has been working to address systemic racism within rural health care. The title of the editorial was, Why a Hospital Might Shun a Black Patient. So tell me, why would they do that? <laughs> well, you, you have to uh, 
give a shout out to the New York Times editors for finding a provocative title there. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the issue here fundamentally is that there are well-described disparities uh, or lack of equity, you know, between the majority affluent uh, white American population and almost every other racial or ethnic minority group, as well as low socioeconomic status individuals, people who either live in poor communities or who themselves are poor. And uh, we've known that for years, right? We've known that for years. And in fact, now in the, in the existing landscape of our COVID pandemic, it has only made it more obvious and unfortunately has COVID has disproportionately hurt these communities. So what we were set out to do when we wrote this piece is really communicate that hospitals and physician practices, oftentimes they're not ill-intentioned in generating these disparities. It's just the way our health system functions from a financial perspective, the way, in other words, that our nation pays for healthcare structurally sets up these healthcare inequities that then interact with the already you know, the existing problems, the problems that people already face around structural racism to generate, you know, a large disparities gap for black and Hispanic patients in this country and, and folks who live in, in low socioeconomic status communities. This podcast has had several episodes looking at the issue of systemic racism, but it's always been from the perspective of barriers to healthy food, safe housing, employment, and the racial bias of individual healthcare providers. But what you are suggesting is that the entire healthcare payment structure enables racism. That's exactly right. And, and by identifying it as a major structural issue in how our health system functions, I think we can better understand why it's been so hard to make progress against it. At the end of the day, the same hospitals, the safety net hospitals and the physician practices and other healthcare providers who care for our, our most vulnerable patients, they still have to balance a budget. They still have to be solvent at the end of the day to continue to exist and take care of those populations. And so even they, unfortunately, are put in this very conflicting set of incentives, which is, I want to care for the most vulnerable. But the reality is that if I don't have some wealthy white patients who are uh, who get their insurance through a big commercial carrier, then I can't actually really afford to pay the bills and stay open to do my mission. And so even the most well-intentioned of our healthcare providers and hospitals are stuck in this conundrum that is a structural problem with the way that we pay for care. And the other part that I'll mention here is, as has also been, I think, well described and discussed oftentimes, our healthcare costs continue to grow inexorably, right? Year after year, healthcare is only getting more costly in this country. And we know that we pay more than other developed countries. We know that we get less health out of that payment, Nonetheless, healthcare gets, keeps getting more, uh, more expensive and less affordable, and less of and less of us are actually able to afford to, to get the care we need. So one of the solutions or potential solutions uh, that has been described here is using a shift from volume to value, meaning a transactional system where a physician or a hospital does something and gets, gets paid, which means the incentive for them is to do more, hence this volume concept. The more I do, the more I get paid, the more I take home to value where we're trying to say, what is the actual value to health of a service uh, relative to its cost? And so we're creating a more cost-conscious system 
and placing some of that onus, quite frankly, on the clinicians and the healthcare systems and the hospitals in making those decisions, because ultimately they probably have more information than, say, a bureaucrat in the federal government or somewhere else, or even oftentimes patients. And, uh, and the challenge there is that while we need those value-based payment structures to address the affordability crisis, at the same time, by putting more and more of that onus and putting financial pressure on the hospitals and the physicians and the other kinds of healthcare providers, you can see how it puts them in the crosshairs and then potentially has what I might call a boomerang effect of coming back and hurting us by leading them to do actions like avoid a black patient, for example, because black patients on average are going to have a worse outcome or they're going to cost more to take care of. And that hurts me in the the, uh, context of this value-based contract where I ultimately am holding the purse at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And with healthcare systems moving toward a population management payment system, one of the concerns from our rural hospital administrators is that they're being held accountable for variables they cannot control. So for example, if a high percentage of the local population is unemployed or has low education levels, we know that these factors have a major influence in overall health. What could a hospital possibly do about these disparities? So yet again, Beth, you highlight a major challenge for our healthcare system. And I think the challenge is twofold. On on one hand, if we don't hold hospitals and healthcare providers and clinicians accountable, then they end up being in in this transactional system where there isn't really an incentive to invest in infrastructures to address those problems. On the other hand, if we place that financial accountability, and oftentimes accountability for more than just the finances, also sometimes the health outcomes, on those rural hospitals, then we get the problem that you just described, which is there's a bunch of factors, a bunch of factors that influence health of individuals or health of populations. And that's challenging because then the hospital may not be equipped. We need to find a way in this system to transition from this transactional system to one where hospitals are still supported in the transition, but that they're able to do it through infrastructure investment. And I think we do know that from some other countries, and I think some of the other experiments or demonstration projects that have been done within our own country, that this can be done. If you don't incentivize any investment in infrastructure and a way to meet these populations, to your point, who may have less education, they may have less health literacy, they may be unemployed. If we don't develop systems to help them take better care of themselves, to perhaps teach them how to do healthy, uh, how to do better healthy behaviors, to quit smoking, to drink less, for example, and if we don't have systems to help do that, then we're certainly not going to make progress against that. And, and so we're in, a, we're in a tough spot. Don't get me wrong. We're in a very tough spot here. And I very much empathize with the hospital administrators and other clinicians who take care of these challenging populations, either in rural settings or in urban settings. And I do think, however, at the end of the day, we need to find a way to shift our system toward one that creates more of an incentive, that rewards, that creates more of an impetus to drive in, uh, investment in these types of systems of care and these can be technology focused. They can be even things like community health worker programs where we're investing in the communities by creating jobs for people who then can help those 
poor individuals, those less educated individuals, again, access resources and make better decisions. So we need a new type of system. There's going to be a lot of growing pains in getting there. So do you think changing the payment structure to something like Medicare for all or universal health care would help reduce some of these inequities? That's a fantastic question. I, I think the challenge is that there are two separate issues here. One issue that you're highlighting is, do we get people insured in the first place? You know, this is the, is health insurance a right kind of thing? And even if we do that, even if we get everybody health insurance, on one hand, absolutely, that is fantastic. It would be a fantastic achievement to do that, to make every American have health insurance. Uh, and the reason for that is because if you're uninsured, obviously, it's much harder to access care. And if you do access care, it's way more likely to make you bankrupt, right? There's a lot of uh, evidence for that, and everybody knows healthcare is costly. So it will help in part, right? It will help in from the perspective of some financial protection for individuals, some ability to access care in a little bit of a better way, if you will. What Medicare for All or universal healthcare insurance doesn't do is it doesn't fix really anything about what we've been talking about thus far, which is it doesn't fix the relationship between how healthcare payment is done from an insurance company to how the clinician of the hospital are receiving that payment. That relationship is very fractured from the insurance question. And in fact, if you rewind 10 years to the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act actually tried to address both of those pieces. I would say the more politicized, the more publicized piece of it was the insurance coverage side. This is the part about the individual mandate. This is the part that's been litigated in the Supreme Court multiple times, including actively right now. And that piece has been front and center, and we all focus on it. But actually, tucked into the Affordable Care Act is a big part that is actually trying to address this issue that we're otherwise talking about, which is what is the relationship between healthcare payment and clinicians, and then ultimately the outcomes. For example, it authorized the creation of a so-called innovation center within Medicare and Medicaid services, within the federal agency of, of Medicare and Medicaid. And that innovation center has been funded at the tune of $10 billion over the decade and actually just recently got reauthorized at that level as well. And that entity is supposed to try out these value-based payment models. Now, the challenge is, alongside that, there wasn't necessarily, this is my opinion, there wasn't necessarily a, a dual focus, if you will, on the vulnerable populations or seeing how these types of models then impact equity. And, and that's what I think part of what we're calling for, you know, in the New York Times article that we wrote was, hey, we need this focus too. We need, we're not attacking the value-based care movement, in fact, because we think it's needed to make healthcare affordable. That itself is an equity issue. But if we're going to make this shift over time, then we have to also have front and center this equity issue. Otherwise, potentially, we can create a bunch of downstream problems that we never intended, but at the end of the day, harm vulnerable populations. Now, your editorial looked specifically at why hospitals might shun African-Americans, but couldn't the same concern be applied to other populations with health inequities, such as people in rural communities who don't have insurance? Absolutely. It, it definitely, you know, we, we talk about it in the context of, of um, bl Black Americans in particular, to some extent, because we have the most evidence about it. It's been the best studied, if you will, by 
by research groups like my own and and my colleagues, and even to some extent states and and the federal government. There's a little bit less known, I would say, although it's now become a very emerging area of focus to, of, uh, you know, what are the inequities that do face rural populations. I think we do know from an economic trajectory perspective that rural populations uh, do face uh, some of the same challenges as some of our urban black populations, for example, or our urban poor. And and so those the inequities and the way that our system functions very much applies across the board, as you point out, to other disadvantaged populations. The, the one point of clarification that I'll make, however, is the dynamics actually might be different. So in the context of an urban population, oftentimes they have access to large academic medical centers. You know, we may have some structural problems with payment, but there may be less problems with structural problems with access. Now, there's still access problems. I don't, I, I don't want to mislead us here. But at least from a proximity perspective, you can imagine that there's access uh, you know, by public transportation or by foot to, to, to high-quality providers. The, the challenge in the rural setting, of course, is that these rural hospitals that, that we might be talking about, you know, those rural hospitals are linchpins for their community, economically as well as for health. And again, so you know, placing financial risk on top of them giving them these conflicting incentives can be really challenging because if those hospitals don't do well in those value-based types of programs and unfortunately have to close or partially close, that hits the communities hard in multiple, multiple dimensions, not just in the dimension of healthcare. It also affects economics and employment and a bunch of other pieces. So the, the dynamics between, just to uh, contrast here and simplify it, urban settings and rural settings I think, yes, we have to worry about inequities one and the same. At the same time, the dynamics may actually be quite different. And so the types of solutions that we would think about from a policy perspective uh, will be somewhat different. Now, your editorial suggested three action steps to address this issue. Let's talk through them real quick. One, payment reforms to include goals for reducing health disparities. How does that work? So... Ultimately, to this point, the vast majority of value-based programs that have been put out there, they, they don't include explicit goals, explicit goals, explicit metrics, and then explicit incentives to try to close that disparities gap. So one policy solution that we're suggesting has actually been in part implemented by some states. So for example, the state of Washington, the state of California as part of their Medicaid programs have now started to explicitly monitor the impact of these programs on vulnerable populations, uh, populations like racial minorities, for example. And they, they disseminate that information back to the, the participating healthcare providers. They make it obvious what's happening. So that, that is one important piece that they do. They're also now over time starting to nudge towards, not quite there yet fully, financial incentives to say, in these programs, if you, if you are able to generate better quality or if you're able to generate a savings for the program, then oftentimes we will share a bonus back with the provider, the financial bonus back saying, hey, you know what? You guys have done good here. Uh, you should share in some of the, the value that we've created. Now, to date, that has been done on a purely all population basis, if you will. Some of the states now have started to say, well, if you do better specifically on closing the maternity mortality gap or the infant mortality gap in Medicaid between 
the black population and the all-comer population, then in that case, we will actually unlock more bonuses for you. That is the type of incentive that we're talking about here. Let's make it explicit. Let's make it front and center. And let's make the reward tangible and real. If we do that, then health systems are going to respond to those incentives. They're going to invest in the types of infrastructure that they need, the types of systems of care that they need to address the needs of those populations. Otherwise, they're kind of looking at the average patient. Oftentimes, the average patient is not one who faces these challenges. And that leads to your second recommendation, which is disparate impact monitoring. How does that work? So let's take one second here and just uh, talk about what disparate impact is, because that's important. So in contrast to disparate impact is disparate treatment. Disparate treatment is what we would probably all viscerally cringe at and would make us all have creepy crawlies on our skin, which is explicitly treating Black Americans differently than white Americans or Hispanic Americans different differently than how we treat white Americans, right? That doesn't feel right. Unfortunately, in our nation's history, we have a lot of evidence of that or a lot of history of doing that. Uh, but at the end of the day, not doing disparate treatment, unfortunately, is not enough. What disparate impact says is that you can have colorblind or race agnostic types of policies. So these are policies that are not saying we're going to treat blacks and whites differently. In fact, they may say we're going to treat everybody the same. But those same policies may actually have disparate impact, meaning they may affect black Americans differently than they affect white Americans. There's a lot of good examples of this. You know, for example, take something like a, historically speaking, outside of healthcare, a poll tax, right? So I need to pay money to go vote. So everybody has to do it, whether you're white, rich, poor, black, Hispanic, doesn't matter. But who are the people who aren't going to be able to afford that poll tax? It's going to be the poor, right? So even though it's not a disparate treatment policy, it does have a disparate impact. So in healthcare, Many of the policies that we pursue, including these value-based payment policies, they're most certainly not disparate treatment, but they may, they may be disparate impact. Now, we don't necessarily know that for all the policies. My research group and others have done work that we have shown there are some of these policies that do result in disparate impact. There are others that seemingly, at least from what we can understand to date, don't. But unless we actually monitor for disparate impact, we are pulling the wool over our eyes, and we won't be able to respond by trying to change policies to protect these populations. And then looking at the big picture, your third recommendation was studying how payment reforms enable or address structural racism. So this is the big kahuna, right? So at the end of the day, I think we have, uh, we can make progress on how to meet Black Americans where they are in terms of healthcare needs. But there is a ton that is swept under social determinants of health and structural racism, which to some extent, I think to date for us, at least in the research community, I would say is these are factors that we don't really understand, despite having a lot of similarities, for example, within a population. You can normalize for income, you can normalize for geography. At the end of the day, we see differences between white Americans and black Americans in terms of the type of care that they receive. Uh, for example, black Americans are less likely to get hip and knee replacement surgery than white Americans. They're not any less likely to get arthritis of their knee and require it. 
but they're less likely to get a joint replacement. Now, why is that? I think we can speculate as to a number of factors, but we don't really know, largely speaking. Some of it may actually also be related to preferences. But stitching all of this together is very challenging. And so social determinants of health, to some extent, have been a catch-all term for we don't know, but we know that this is related to the structural racism that exists and the social the social challenges that Black Americans face. And so unless we start to make investments in better understanding what structural racism factors are influencing healthcare provision, healthcare receipt, the way that people seek care, then we're ultimately not going to be able to solve this problem. As much as, much as we would like to, on paper, set up the right metrics and incentivize the right types of systems of care, the ultimate goal here is that we don't have to do, we don't have to have those special programs anymore because we have eliminated structural racism and we're in a, uh, in, in, you know, sort of post-world, if you will, where we don't have these challenges. So what we're advocating here is, well, we have to continue to push forward on trying to understand these dynamics. And then that way we can, ins we can start to develop programs to try to address those dynamics. Well, my guess is we're going to be studying this for a long time yet to come. There's lots of data to think about. If a student is interested in a career in medical ethics, what advice would you give to that person? First off, uh, I would say go for it because it is a very intellectually stimulating, uh, but at the same time, very real world uh, set of topics and issues. And you can almost take any healthcare issue and put a medical ethics type of lens on it. Pragmatically speaking, the advice I would give is seek out people like me, seek out people like our department at the University of Pennsylvania, or there's many, many others. Uh, they have master's programs in bioethics. Many of them, in fact, have undergraduate programs. Some of them actually offer continuing learning type programs or in the day now in the age of virtual learning, the ability to actually access the same types of course content and literature and what have you virtually. So there's a lot of opportunity out there, and I would encourage students to, to be more proactive and, and find those resources. And last question, something that I ask every guest, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? Uh, if I could, if I could do anything personally, I would say, you know, really changing fundamentally the way that we think about rural healthcare uh, as more than a healthcare issue, right? So I think if if we could stimulate uh, federal governments and state governments to start to realize and invest in these communities and these entities as you know, the the core, oftentimes the core entities that are kind of holding the whole fabric of the community together and then create investment programs, create healthcare payment programs, create, you know, sort of social investments that are all trying to move in the same direction. I think that would be great. I think that would have really outsized impact on rural communities across the country. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Navathe. Thank you, Beth. It was great to be on. That's Dr. Navathe advocating for investing in rural communities as a means to improve health for the entire community. You can find a link to his editorial in the show notes. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join VRHA to make sure you are receiving all of our communications. Visit vrha.org and click the membership tab. This year's been unreal. 
Now school for kids is laptops in the living room. Coronavirus turned everything upside down, but we still have to remember important stuff like getting flu shots. Why is that? In uncertain times, getting a flu shot is something we can control. It's one less health worry for our family. You're right. I read the flu causes thousands of deaths and millions of doctor visits each year. All right, then. We're getting family flu shots, and we'll tell our friends they should, too. Flu shots are more important than ever this year. This ad sponsored by the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association.